my name is Liam O'Donnell. <laughs> my name is Joshua Alvarez, and you're listening to episode 23 of Cinepunks. This is um this is actually a special episode just because uh, Liam and I are um, we already did the interview that we had um, that we have for this episode, which is very interesting. It's an interview with Mr. Bill Perrine, who uh, has just directed a movie called "It's Gonna Blow," the it's underground blow. San Diego, on the an- underground San Diego music from um, from 1986 to 1996. It's extremely. So, uh, yeah, so we recorded that already. It's an extremely specific. On. It's an extremely specific title. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a specific ten uh, ten year decade or ten year period in uh, the underground music scene of San Diego. But it's uh, it's something that really means a lot to us, or me specifically, because I don't know if you know, it comes up a couple times in the interview. But um, I'm a more than huge Rocket from the Crypt fan. You really, slash John Reese fan. You like really, I love. Yeah, you really love Rocket from the Crypt. I do, I do. I love them so much. Um, yeah, just uh, as a rock and roll entity, them and the Smiths are the two most important musician musical experiences of my life, and um, I well, love them. And you, so, that and and if you had to explain to someone what it is about them that you love so much, what would you say? How would you explain it? How do I explain my my love for Rocket from the Crypt? Yeah. Um, well, Rocket from the Crypt to me epitomize everything that I love about punk rock, even though they don't sound like a traditional punk rock band. Like they're creative, yet they're uh, like it's it's the perfect. It's kind of like my love for Yodorowsky. Like it's the perfect meld of highbrow and lowbrow art. You know what I mean? Like on one end, you've got these really inventive musicians playing crazy stuff with lots of different instruments and everything. But then on another hand, you still got dudes that they're singing about like, you know, movie-esque kind of things. You know what I mean? And it's it's very cinematic in its scope. Um, just from songs like, you know, um, On a Rope to songs like Born in 69. Uh, you know, the one record's called Scream, Dracula, Scream. Amazing record. Circa Now. And even just their early stuff when they were when they were becoming Rocket from the Crypt, yeah. it's so inventive and it's so cool. Like, do you listen to them at all? Do you know about Rocket from the Crypt at all? Or so, no? I mean, I remember them from back in the day, and I <laughs> went out of my way to listen to more of it simply because um, you were so stoked on it. And I was like, all right, well, you know, I want to connect with Josh and his love for this band, <laughs> and uh, and I don't like it. No, you don't no, like Rock from the Crypt. I can't. Not it's, at all. It's not my not thing. Even a little bit. No. Wow. I'm definitely more of a uh, yeah. of a Jehu fan. I'm more of a. I'm more interested in Jehu. All right. Well, Jehu's really good too, though. I mean, I love Jehu. They're definitely one of my favorite bands as well. You know, so I don't know anything that John Reese does in my mind is golden. I love that dude. So what has he done stuff other than Rocket and Drive Like Jehu? Well, he was in Pitchfork, as we saw in the movie. Yeah, he which I want to hear um, more of Pitchfork. The movie made me, like, so excited about Pitchfork. Yeah, Pitchfork are really cool. I mean, like, if you like, like, uh, Froberg, like, his voice, he's a singer for, for Drive Like Jehu. Yeah. It's, like, a more experimentally 
More, not so much. I mean, like, here's the thing. Like, you can't categorize any of the stuff that they do as traditional. You know what I mean? You can't say, like, oh, yeah, they play, like, traditional hardcore. Oh, they play traditional rockabilly. They play traditional rock and roll, whatever, whatever. All of it is just freaked, you know what I mean? And, like, nothing sounds like it, I don't think. Hmm. You'll never find a band that sounds like Pitchfork. You'll never find a band that sounds like Rock from the Crypt. You'll never find a band that sounds like drive like jehu you'll find a thousand bands for each band though that's influenced by them oh you know so, what i mean no, like, that's definitely no one true. no one no one will be able to be like oh yeah no we sound just like drive like jehu like no way dude and like the thing is like lyrically jehu versus rocket like rocket's fun you know what i mean like rocket is so fun jehu's fun but a different kind of fun you know what i mean like i don't know um more introspective to me like when i listen to jehu and listen to the lyrics and stuff a lot more focusing inward whereas rocket's a lot more fun i wonder um i wonder if when it comes to like what people would refer to as fun music if maybe (laughs) i like more nerdy fun like less like rocket is very boisterous even if the music isn't hard it's it's still intense for the kind of rock and roll it is mm-hmm. and uh it just rubs me the wrong way like uh, uh, again <laughs> I, I i think i i state the case strongly only because you love it so much like if rocket from the kirk came on at the coffee shop i'm not gonna leave but but it's not something i'm interested in it's just i hear it and i'm just kind of like uh whatever it's just not it just doesn't care with me whereas drive like jay who uh, it's actually really surprising to me when people don't like them. Like they're yeah. to me such a cool combination of intensity and melody and rock. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting because uh, somebody recently was sort of saying how they saw them as just a very traditional indie rock band. I just really? don't. I don't understand that even a little bit. You know, a funny story about Drive Like Jehu is that, uh, um, as you know, Milani went to. Um, Los Angeles for the Mark Ryden exhibit last year. Sure. And uh, while she was out there, she went to, um, oh, that Federal Donuts is the best donut shop in Philadelphia and that we love them because they're our donut shop of choice. <laughs> no, the thing before, what did she go to? <laughs> that part oh, cut out. <laughs> right, that part. She went to Donut Friend in oh, yeah, Los yeah, Angeles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's owned by Mark Trombino. And I told her, like, oh, yeah, yeah, that Mark Trombino guy was in, in the movie a lot, and she didn't know who he was. And she was like, oh, yeah, I talked to him a bunch about his donuts. <laughs> I was like, yeah. That's awesome. And uh, apparently, yeah, yeah, you're talking to a founding member of Drive Like Jehu, so go figure. I don't know. Whatever. Well, my, my attraction to the movie was very much uh, Drive Like Jehu, uh, very much Swing Kids, uh so, Justin Pearson and all, all his various musical entities. Yeah, although, I've, like I said, I've never been a huge Locust person. I appreciate what they did. Like, it's interesting, but it's just not my thing, you know? But just that yeah. whole, the whole, for me, what was interesting about the movie is that I went in thinking I knew a lot about it. Turns out I, turns out I didn't. And not only did I not, uh, the movie was still super interesting. It really sucked me into that world and really explained it to me in a, in a engaging way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. I definitely think it's funny because my only other um, interaction with San Diego is the Comic Con, which is uh, it's it's again nerdy like this stuff is, which is let's be honest, pretty nerdy, but uh, on a whole different level, yeah. <laughs> a whole different focus. So, um, but uh, but you could see the similarities how a city like San Diego could give rise to this weirdly like disjointed scene totally. and this wacky comic book convention you know what i mean like <laughs> i don't know 
I do love San Diego, though. I will say that as well. Like, San Diego, the one time I've been there, I had a blast. Me and Milani had a riotous time. We were there with Evo, and it was great. It was a good time. That's so funny, because I've only been to San Diego once myself, and I had a horrible time. I had a really, really bad time. Uh, and I felt bad, because I, you know, the uh, we you're about to hear, we interviewed Bill Perrine. Great guy. He was very friendly, great to talk to. Uh, clearly in the movie, it, it, San Diego had a huge impact, not just on the people involved in that scene, but on the world, like on music as a whole. And yet my one time actually being in that city was just awful. Now, uh, it's kind of fitting since so many people I know have had bad Philadelphia experiences, and then I think Philadelphia is like the greatest city, so maybe it's like a fair <laughs> trade-off. But it's just when I was in San Diego, uh, I was there on a trip in charge of some kids. I can hear your phone, man. Sorry, sorry. It's Jeff Kong. Uh, si- oh, si- can I just do a sound note? We probably should have said this at the beginning. We- this is the first time we're trying recording from a distance. I'm in Easton, and Josh is in Philly, and we're doing this over Google Hangout. So if you're wondering yeah. why Josh sounds crazy, every once in a while you cut out a little bit, and it sounds crazy, and that's just because it's over the internet. <laughs> But we're doing it, man. Oh, it's so cool. But on the other, so so just saying, like, I feel bad. I was I was in there. I was on a trip. It was back when I was a youth leader. I was with some kids. Uh, I had to be in charge of them. I didn't have a bathing suit, so I couldn't go check out the beach. There wasn't a lot for me to do. I ended up just getting some pizza while I was there, and it was the worst pizza I've ever had. And it made me really sick. It made me like crazy sick. And what was funny about that is I was in Mexico. So what happened was we flew into San Diego, went to Mexico for a week, came back up and did a couple days in San Diego. And then it was like a day, like a day in San Diego and then went back to uh, Mexico. And the only time I got sick the whole time I was in Mexico was when I got home from San Diego and that pizza made me so sick. And I know that's not San Diego's fault at all. I'm sure it's a great place. But for me, I was like, can't believe I got so sick from that pizza in San Diego. <laughs> that is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> it is the you're weirdest. You're like, I need pizza. <laughs> Here's the thing. I didn't want to get pizza, but when you're in charge of kids, sometimes kids were like, oh, you know, I really like the food we're having in Mexico, but, I, you know, I miss pizza. All right, we'll go get some pizza. And it was bad. It's not good pizza. Fair enough. Yeah, um, my experience was different from that. I think one of the funnier parts of the interview with Mr. Bill Perrine that we did was when we asked him what his impression of East Coast hardcore and underground music was during the 90s. And he was like, this is a bunch of angry dudes, bad weather. <laughs> and the best thing about that is that when he said that, we all looked at each other and we were like, that's about right. Yeah, this is- <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is that I, I feel like people in Philly who you think of as not fitting that sort of stereotype, you know, as like not mean dudes, like, oh, he's a very nice, sensitive gentleman. You transplant that dude to another city, especially somewhere in the Midwest, and he's like now the scariest person at the punk show. <laughs> we think of him as a gentleman and a scholar, but in the rest of the country, they're like, did you see that Neanderthal? He was out here again. I, I couldn't imagine what that would be like. I would hate to go to a show and have everyone look at me like, man, this guy's eating people in the pit. And he's fucking destroying people and eating them and using their bones to pick his teeth. Like, that would be so sad. No no, com- I, no comment. I like my rep as a nice guy in Philadelphia. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, real quick, we just wanted to do this as an intro. So let's jump into our uh, whacking on track. Do you have anything you wanted to mention uh, we just so you guys know, the reason we didn't do this with uh, 
Joe and Bull, uh, Joseph and Bull, who we really appreciate for doing the episode with us, or even with Bill Perrine there, uh, was just we had a time crunch. They had to get going yeah. with the actual event, so we couldn't do it. But uh, we do really appreciate them. We'd love to know what Joseph and Bull uh, are excited about uh, and all that sort of stuff. So if they want to comment on the post, they're more than welcome to do that. Very good. Very true. So whacking on track. Um, well, the whack thing that happened this week is that um, the New Jersey hardcore world learned of our friend Nathan Gluck and uh, his diagnosis with stomach and esophageal cancer. Yeah. And um, it's pretty tragic because uh, if you grew up with hardcore in New Jersey from, I'd say, like 1995 to the present, you – either have seen Nate in a thousand bands or you've talked to him on a thousand different occasions. And you know, like this dude is like the authentic deal. Like he is one of the nicest gentlemen you will ever have the chance to meet. And, um, he is, uh, he, he, it's just a pretty busted up story just because, um, you know, he gets this horrible diagnosis on top of like a lot of, uh, just other bad financial stuff going on for their family. So, um, you know, he's in pretty dire need, but the on track part of the story is that, um, there was a GoFundMe set up to help benefit him, and they raised over $100,000 for him. But um, as you know, cancer as a battle isn't one that's just you know taken care of and dealt with. I mean, it, it helps solve a lot of their problems immediately, but for the long run, I, I'm not so sure you know, how, 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 much, how far that'll go. You know what I mean? Because it's pretty serious cancer that he's dealing with right now. But um, on track – is number one that they raised all that money for him, but you can still do, um, you can still contribute to the GoFundMe. Yeah. I believe it's GoFundMe.com. PMA Por Vida is uh, the Nathan Gluck fund. I'm not sure off the top of my head, but um, hold on, let me let me see if I can look it up real quick, real quick, real quick. But um, the other thing, which is which is really funny, is that um, well, not funny, but really on track, is that they're doing an epic Nate Fest. Um, in March in New Jersey, where tons of bands that, again, if you grew up in New Jersey um, during the 90s, mid to late 90s, tons of bands that you wanted to see are playing now, and it's fucking unbelievable. I think Hold I on. think technically, I guess, this would go in the things we're looking forward to section, but we can just compress them since we're doing it all in the beginning here. Well, I thought and it was think... whack versus on track, and, and these things are both whack and on track. Oh, that's true. So... That's true. That's true. But this <laughs> so, is something yeah. we are very much looking forward to, and uh, if you are anywhere in the New Jersey... I mean, I don't even want to say the New Jersey area. If you're on the east fucking coast, there's not really a reason for you not to come to this. Yeah. Yeah, it's insane. Do you, but, have, the, uh, yeah, do you have the list of bands in front of you right now? Well, it's just for the GoFundMe, it's the Nate, Nate Gluck Fund. If you go to GoFundMe.com, and I guess there's a way to search that, that's what it is. But, dude, this lineup is unbelievable. It's sick of it all. Kill your idols. Indecision. Killing time. Endeavor. Fucking Endeavor, man. Um, purpose. Purpose to playing. Um, Grokinora, uh, for love of Shai Halud, Mouthpiece, Strength 691, Big Wig, 45 Revolutions, which is members of Judge and Girl Biscuits, yeah. Old Wounds, Stag Party. Um, this is There's other bands that are going to be announced. All I know is that it's in New Jersey on Saturday, uh, the 21st of March, and Sunday, the 22nd. The venue isn't. Um, it hasn't been announced yet, to my knowledge, but man, I mean, seriously, did you guys? Rem- do you remember 
like when Adam Dahl had his his um his car accident. You remember that? And the bass player from Dillinger and Middlesex had a bunch of those crazy shows to benefit that guy and like offset his medical expenses. And then a couple of years later, they had the Leviton benefits from Matt Leviton. He used to book the Manville Elks Lodge and he booked Middlesex also. And that was another two day fest that was insane, insane. I just remember seeing Agnostic Front there and um. I believe there was no stage, or if there was a stage, it was only like a like a like half a foot or whatever. Yeah. And fucking Roger Murray looked like an animal. Like the dude's neck was like one of my thighs. It was just the most one of the most terrifying hard questions I ever did been to. Did you just say Murray? Like he's French? Roger Moret? I don't fucking know. Roger from AF. That dude was a monster. I just remember like people stage diving and trying to get to him on the microphone, and it was it, it looked like. It was amazing, but it was also terrifying at the same time. I just love that you said Murray. I'm just going to say that from now on. Are you familiar with the uh, the works of one Roger Murray? <laughs> He's most known for Le Agnostique Front. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Victim on the pain. <laughs> Why is he German now? That's weird. Did I go German? Well, whatever, I'm bad at it. I'm yeah. actually. I feel like I'm actually pretty good at accents. If the goal of accents is to have every accent bleed into another accent. <laughs> well, well done, sir. Yeah, I'm, I'm good at that. So I, I mean, it's it's actually kind of mixed emotions because this is obviously the worst case scenario. Like you don't want to have to have a show because someone needs to cover medical bills but the show is amazing so it's like i want to say like we are you know i'm personally praying for nate uh hoping whatever it is that makes you feel like you are sending him good vibes but i think it's also difficult because i'm like so excited like the lineup for that fest i mean i I, when i saw endeavor i just was like well all right there you go endeavor cool my year is made (laughs) Man, yeah. Well, you know, we at Cinepunks would like to send our good vibes out to Nate and and Christy, and uh, hope you guys are uh, getting on okay, and that we love you. And please, listeners, if you can contribute to the GoFundMe at all, um, do so. The Nate Gluck Fund on GoFundMe dot com. Um, and he, every dime helps. Every you know, and he's a good dude, genuinely good dude. So. That is both my whack and my on track. I love you so much. Okay, so uh, uh, obviously we want to endorse that. Go to Nate Fest. I think that's totally worth it. Uh, this episode won't be up in time, but we're going to uh, we're going to do some horror movie action tomorrow night. That's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and I got to say, uh, uh, I want to point this out and see if people get excited about it. But coming up in New York, uh, there's going to be that John Carpenter retrospective. Oh man, talk about that for a little bit. All right, so I think it's a. Uh, is it Bam? I think it's Bam is doing uh, every John Carpenter movie. Now, not all of them are on film, so I'm only going to try to go to the film screening ones. Not that it's a big deal that they're using DCP. Like, I think we've had this discussion before. I don't think digital is a problem. It's just I'll have other opportunities to see these movies on digital. Seeing them on film is like a rare treat, so I'm going to try to go up for that. John Carpenter's going to be there. He's doing a talk. And then he's also curated some of his favorite movies to screen, including Sorcerer, the William Friedkin movie, and uh, Straw Dogs. So uh, not Peck-a-paw. only can you – yeah, Peck-a-paw. So not only can you see some sick 
John Carpenter movies, you can see some sick movies that John Carpenter likes and hear him speak, which I don't know how great the John Carpenter speaking will be. Uh, I've heard he, it's a mixed bag with him, but I'm still excited about it. Do you remember what happened when he was supposed to be here for the ward screening? Yeah, didn't he like Skype in and like like take a bong hit on camera or something? Yeah, something like that. He wanted to watch the Lakers game. Yeah. <laughs> so ridiculous. So that's your caveat, but that is pretty on track. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, I think this is a great interview. Uh, again, so much thank yous to the man, Joseph, uh, and his brother, Bull. Uh, and I and, and we really want to endorse, uh, if you like this sort of thing, check out Joseph's project, Loud Fast Philly. Uh, this didn't fit his project because it's about San Diego and not Philadelphia. But uh, I think he does a lot of great work interviewing people about their experience in punk rock in Philadelphia. Absolutely. We're also um, – we also have other uh – interviews in the works with joseph currently but we're not going to talk about it right now but no. hopefully that'll pan out yeah and um if it does you will of course hear about it oh of course <laughs> uh, and, so, and, and as and as always if you want to be uh a guest here on the show you don't have to have directed a cool movie uh you can actually just be a person who we want to talk to so just hit us up Absolutely. So with no further ado, uh, let's get to the interview with Mr. Bill Perrine, director of It's Gonna Blow, San Diego Underground Music from 1986 to 1996. Sweet. My name is Liam O'Donnell. And I'm Josh Alvarez, and you're listening to episode 23 of Cinepunks. Cinepunks. Where today we have a special guest. Well, we have two special hosts. We have Mr. Joseph Gervaisi and Mr. Bull Gervaisi as well. And we're here. Oh, do you guys want to say hi? Hello. Hello. And we are here with Mr. Bill Perrine. Hello. <laughs> who is uh, the director of, what is the full name of the movie? Well, the full extra special name is It's Gonna Blow. San Diego's, San Diego's Music Underground, 1986 to 96. I just called It's Gonna Blow. <laughs> okay. It's Gonna Blow, which we'll be screening tonight. I like that it's very specific to like the years. Like, mm-hmm. like someone could come to the screening and be like, "You didn't cover this band." Well, actually, that was a '97 band. <laughs> that was outside our. Program. I think you understand my my idea behind this. It's exactly why I did that. Don't want to hear any bullshit. That's we can really curse good. on this, can't we? Oh yeah. Okay, oh fucking right. Yeah. yeah. Cursing yeah. and belting are f- thoroughly encouraged. Fucking great. Huh? Yeah. It's good. Uh, so, how do we want to start? Do we have something? We probably should have mapped this out ahead of time. Yeah, but that would be a little too professional for us. That's yeah, not what yeah, we yeah. do. Well, let's start with uh, uh, how, what was the inspiration to start with this particular movie, San Diego, this time period, and what was your relationship to this material before you made the movie? It seems like not something far away. Like that you didn't. Well, I'm, I'm from San Diego. Right, obviously. I'm born and bred. Um, and I grew up with. I guess the, the short answer is I grew up with a guy named Stymie, who wouldn't mean anything to people out here, but he was kind of a pivotal guy in like the San Diego music scene. Um, he was in a band called Sub Society, and he was a band called Inch. And so I went to grade school with Stymie. So we were like, whatever that is, nine, ten years old, something like that. How old are you? I'm 42. Okay. Um, so I'm kind of on the, I'm a couple years younger than most of the musicians in the film, I would say. Um, but uh, yeah, I grew up with Stymie, and then you know, as kids do, we sort of uh, lost track of each other for a while. And when I came back and saw him a few years later, he was a, suddenly a punk rocker, <laughs> like he was just this kid going to a little private school in San Diego when I knew him. And then next time I saw him, he's in full punk, you know, paraphernalia. I think he might even have a mohawk. I don't remember the whole deal. 
And he'd obviously <laughs> had some hard road behind him at that point. Like in the three years that I hadn't seen him, he'd gone through a lot. Right, right. And anyway, so, you know, I, I sort of reconnected with Steinme on and off through the years. And I just sort of saw his evolution as a person and, and the evolution of like the community that he was in. And of course, the music was everywhere for a while, so I was into some of the bands. Um, and then Steinme died about, I'd say about five years ago, something like that. Mm. And I went to a memorial for him. And I was just in this room, and I was just looking around at all these people and realizing like the history they had together and what they'd all been through and how everybody still knew each other and was still doing music and stuff like that. And I just thought, you know, this would be a great... You know, somebody should document this because it's, you know... Uh, I think it's something that maybe speaks outside to, to people outside of San Diego. I think everybody's had something like that in their life to one degree or another. Um, and I waited two years, and I finally did it. So that's, that's the short answer to that. When did you come into the scene? Uh, well, I don't think I don't. I wouldn't say I was ever in the scene. I mean, I had friends like Stymie and a couple other guys who I knew who played in bands, but and I went to shows occasionally. I had a lot of the records, but I wasn't part of the scene. Like I was definitely on the outside of it, uh, which is one of the reasons I did the film in a way. Like I think if I'd been in it, I wouldn't have done the film. It was it something that kept you at, at a certain distance from what was going on? Not re- well. I mean, there was definitely a perception, maybe between, uh, among some people, that it was a little clicky. But looking back on it, I think most of that was me and the other people. You know, because because it was actually it was it was a pretty the, the scene itself was basically if you did anything like if you sort of had made any effort to be part of it like just to do something, you were accepted no matter who you were. If you weren't creative, if you didn't really have the energy to actually do anything, maybe they kept you at a little bit of an arm's distance. Um, but no, really, it was more, I think, my temperament at the time. I'm kind of a bit of a loner to begin with. I'm kind of quiet, and I was especially quiet and shy back then. But it's a nice vantage point as a director, you know, because you're sort of on the outside looking in and watching things. But I knew people enough that I'd occasionally hear, you know, little bits of uh, inside info and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Where was the scene centered around? I mean, certain certain venues or uh, locations where things were happening? Well, I mean, San Diego, like especially at the time there really weren't that many venues so like sort of the incubator is a place called the, the Che Cafe which is at UCSD the, the university and that's an all ages like Marxist event space you know it's that not, place, not Marxist anarchist yeah, really. Bull, Bull has uh, played there with his uh, three of his different bands right? yeah I played there a few times yeah the what, do you want, what, bands what bands Bull? What? Uh, I played there with Policy of Three I played in San Diego with 400 years but not at Che Cafe and uh with Rambo at the Che Cafe. Well, like, what was your impression of the Che Cafe? Do you remember oh, it at all? I loved it. It was great. Uh, it was a, a very interesting DIY space. Uh, the first time I was there, we were on tour uh, with the band Policy of Three. Uh, it was our first tour we'd ever set up. It was in 93, and we really kind of had no idea what we were doing. Uh, so a lot of our shows fell through, and we wound up being in San Diego for a week, and we played there three times over the course of that week. Because <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> there was nothing else to do, that's wow. damn sure. Uh, and yeah, it was great. I mean, we wound up spending a lot of time hanging out with Justin Pearson, and right. uh, we played with like Tid Wrench and uh, you know whatever bands happened to be coming through at the time. So you know a lot of the guys, or you've encountered a bunch of the people who were in the movie. Then if you played with all, or if yeah, you knew those guys, yeah. But yeah, I love that space. Uh, I was surprised more recently when I went back that it was still. Uh, in existence. Well, it may not be for long. Yeah, it was under some type of fire. Was it not like 
They're talking about closing it. They, I mean, the thing is, this is like the story of the Che Cafe, is that the university wanted them out, basically. And every few years, they're either shut down or they're about to be shut down. Um, but this latest one, it's pretty, it's pretty real. Like, it kind of... We did a benefit for them with the movie about two months ago, and they've got lawyers working on it and everything. But, I mean, to be honest, it doesn't really sound all that good. But, you know, I think people have said that before, and it keeps yeah. coming back. Leading up to this, were there many shows going on there? Like, is it still active, or has it been sort of dormant for a while? I just, I, I don't the know. The yeah. Uh, no, it's always active. Like, wow. they're always doing stuff. I mean, it's not only music uh, shows. It's, you know, they do, you've got to do everything. I mean, they do dinners. They do uh, lecture series. I don't know what all they do at the Che. It's as much a political social space as it is a venue. When did it come to be? You know, I don't know exactly. It kind of went... Like, it was started by kind of hippies, I think. And then it was taken over by the punks in probably the early 80s. Like, I think Black Flag and the Descendants played there. Usually stuff like that. <laughs> What's that again? That's usually how it goes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it goes back at least, you know... Yeah, at least to the mid-80s. So what is that? 85, 95, 2005, 25. Yeah, so yeah, probably like 30 years or something like is that. Is it still to some degree Marxist-oriented? Or is that just... The starting point of the of the venue. It's still very Marxist anarchist. I mean, the the, the place you'll see in the movie, it's the, it's covered with murals of uh, Marx and Che Guevara and uh, I don't know who all. Anybody who's sort of a radical. Stalin. 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 No, no, I don't think they went quite that far. <laughs> they might have painted over that one. I hope so. <laughs> That's what I'm just saying. <laughs> I just want to say, Joseph has been on the podcast twice. Stalin mentioned both times. <laughs> I have a real hard on for Stalin. Man of Steel, you know. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the Che. It's it's basically that was the incubator, and then after at a certain point, a place called the Casbah came into being. The Che's all ages. The Casbah's twenty one and up. It's a bar, but it came. It's a little bit more of. A, um, it's a real venue. You know what I mean? Like it's professionally run. No, no disrespect to the Che. It's just a different. Or to the Casbah, it's just a different animal. But that that really kind of became the center uh, of the San Diego music scene. Uh, there were other clubs here and there, but that was really the one. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there anybody, whether it was an individual or a whole band or anyone like that, that you really wanted to have in the movie and for whatever reason you couldn't find them or you couldn't connect with them? Or was there anyone who was problematic to get in touch with? Well, there were a lot of people who were problematic, but no, no, I mean, for the most part, I got everybody I I wanted. I mean, there were some kind of outliers that I wanted to talk to um, for reasons of context, I guess you could say, like Pearl Jam, I actually wanted to talk to Eddie Vedder, because he's from, he lived in San Diego for, I forget, five years or something like that, and he left basically right when things got going in San Diego. He went up to Seattle. And it's funny, like, everybody I knew has some connection to Eddie Vedder. They all know him in some way. And everybody said the exact same thing. Oh, Eddie will be totally down to do it. I can introduce you to Eddie. (laughs) No, Eddie. I never got Eddie. So uh, (laughs) that and the Stone Temple Pilots, who, if you watch the movie, you'll see uh, they have kind of a place in the San Diego scene. And I was never able to connect with with those guys. But, you know, for the most part uh, of the, you know, the local bands... uh, one or two exceptions. I got. I got everybody. I got everybody I wanted, and even the people who didn't necessarily appear in the film, they helped me in some way. Like uh, Rick Froberg from Drive Like Jay, who's not in the movie, being interviewed, but there's tons of footage of him. He did the artwork for the movie, you know, um, that kind of thing. So, 
it took some time, but it, I, I really got everybody I think I wanted. You mentioned uh, San Diego getting going, and I'm sure you addressed this in the movie, but what do you think, was there a certain catalyst or certain bands or something that, that really kind of started this, the scene? Well, I mean, I think the band that really got like people looking at San Diego was, was Rocket from the Crypt, because they when they came out, they were... <laughs> They're my favorite band. Are you a big rock? That's well, right. Yeah. Are you going to show off the tattoo? No. Do you have I, a rocket tattoo? I, I on purpose left all of my rocket from the crypt paraphernalia at home. <laughs> do you have a rocket tattoo? I do, yeah. Really? It's, have you used uh, it to out. get into a show? I tried at the last <laughs> two, but uh, I was told that they don't let me do it anymore. Wow, so, that's awesome. That's also Let Teddy the record from, show uh, that you showed me a Burgers super record. awesome rocket tattoo <laughs> and a Bob's Burgers tattoo. Yeah, you got <laughs> Does that get you into Bob's Burgers shows? No, it doesn't. It just makes me laugh every time I look at it. It's fair enough, I guess. <laughs> Which has only been for a few days, right? Yeah, yesterday. You just got so, yesterday, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, Rocket from Crypt is like my... I just saw... I saw, The first time I saw them was like in 96 with, uh, with Rancid. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and then... Uh, the last time I saw them was just this past year. I saw them here, and then me and my wife went to D.C. to see them at the Black Hat. Oh, nice. And, um, yeah, it was so good. Like, between them and Morrissey, those are, like, my two most favorite musical entities. Morrissey and Rocket from the Grave? Yeah, I have know. Have you talked to John Reese about this? Has no, he, have because to him? I have not. I I'd have like not. to hear out how that goes over. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not well, I imagine. No, you might like But, it. hey, you know. But, yeah. But they were, like, the catalyst, you're saying, for... Uh, well, I mean, they, they came out with their second record, Circa Now, which is a, a great record. And it's also like a really hooky record, like uh, Sturdy Wrists, I think, was the first single off that. And it's just, it's insanely catchy and short, and but kind of weird at the same mm-hmm. time. Well, Ditch Digger was on that record. Ditch Digger, yeah. Like Ditch a Digger waltz, was so. huge, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it just, you know, and then John's a great front man, a great performer. The whole band's a great, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, they put on a show. They don't just play, you know. They, they Absolutely. Put on, Costumes and breathing fire and all this kind of stuff, and that got people's attention. And then, like, you know, um, I think maybe my my whole theory of it, and people have validated this to some degree, is I think the record industry looked at it like if you look at the structure of Seattle, like you had your Nirvana, which was like your big player, and you had your sort of you know little niche bands that were also huge but kind of in a different way. Like you had Nirvana at the top, then you had like your Soundgarden over to the left, and you had your Alice in Chains to the right. Mm-hmm. Each kind of fulfilling a little niche. I think San Diego was like that. Like Rocket, they saw as their big, you know, mm-hmm. the one that would get things started. And then you'd have a band like Lucy's Fur Coat, you know, doing this. And you'd have uh, a miniature doing that, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, it never quite worked out that way for reasons that, you know, I don't know if anybody can answer that. But but I'm curious, like, how did you find out about Rocket? How did I find out about Rocket? I, um... I think it was 120 minutes, and it was Ditch Digger. It was yeah. that song. That was the first song that I heard, and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" And then I, I was at the Stone Pony, and I re- I remember it was a uh, it was H2O and Rancid and Rocket, and H2O went on first, and they have like pretty big tie to Philadelphia, so it was like all the it was like all those dudes are there, and then like this band came out with a bunch of horns and stuff. I was like, who are these Pompadour dudes? <laughs> and I was like, is this a ska band? And then they played, and I, my mind was completely blown. Yeah. Like, destroyed. And then I saw Rancid, and that was cool. But then, like, you know, I went back, I came <laughs> away from that. <laughs> yeah, Rancid was cool. But after that, I was just like, Jesus Christ. And then, ever since then, it's been a lifelong obsession to listen to everything from them. People, and People who like Rocket really like Rocket. Yeah, they yeah, inspire yeah. inspire obsession, which is For cool. sure. Yeah. They're so cool. It's interesting you say you said about starting with Rock from the Crept, and I'm wondering if, in doing the research for the movie, I mean, there it feels to me like 
musically, maybe not sort of like socially, whatever, but musically, the gap between Rock from the Crypt and, say, The Locust feels like a gaping chasm. Right. And yet this is like the same, this scene. same in, in theory scene where in making the movie, were you able to understand how that happened? Were they, and, and how close is that relationship when it comes to actual human beings? You know, when it comes to like fans, you might be talking about two very different groups of people, but that doesn't mean that those bands don't share DNA. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, I'll, I'll start by saying that like pretty much everyone who comes out of San Diego in that period they're all friends, like, to yeah. one degree or another. Like, there's yeah. not... I don't know that Justin Pearson and John Reese necessarily see each other all the time, but they totally... I mean, they toured together, and they mm-hmm. both dig what the other one is doing. Yeah. Even though there's, I don't know, probably eight years age, age difference or something, too, in there. Um, but, like, Justin says it in the movie, that, you know, there were so many different things happening in San Diego because San Diego is a very... It's a very conservative, especially back then, very conservative not particularly artsy place and so like Justin said if you found somebody who was doing anything even remotely cool even if you didn't necessarily you weren't necessarily on their wavelength mm-hmm. you were just like fuck yeah bring it on you know yeah. what I mean like you're you know just bring it I don't care <laughs> and that's and you had to band together and it's still yeah. like that I mean all these guys I mean yeah like you said I mean or, or even more like I don't know, a band like No Knife, which is kind of poppy and maybe a little emo-y. Mm, or indie rocky. Indie rocky, totally. Mm. Sits, I mean, Mitch from No Knife and Justin from The Locust have a lot in common. <laughs> the way they look at the world and the people they know and the things mm. they do, a lot in common. But you'd never guess that they had anything to do with one another. Or I right. wouldn't. Right. And that's what makes it great. I mean, that's really what is so kind of... It would have been boring for me, I think, to do a movie about... Like just kind of the straight ahead punk scene in San Diego. If a San Diego was just straight ahead three chord punk all the time, it would bore the shit out of me. Right. You know, my attention span's not that good. So it's great to be able to pinball back and forth between these different all these different kinds of sounds. Different things. Why, yeah. why don't you talk to us a little bit about the process of making the movie? Like, was it like you already said that there are people that you could get in touch with and all that stuff? But that from from beginning to end, what what were the things that you what were the things that you had to do? I know. Dude, I'm so right bad now. at this. You should... T- anyway, not <laughs> the point. <laughs> by the way, uh, this being recorded so we can all... They can see us like... We, that's actually usually Josh's job, but I think he's so stoked on this subject matter. He hasn't thought of it. <laughs> I'll take some old selfies. While we're <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But. No, no, no. Um, yeah, so like, talk to us about the process of making the movie. Like For you, what was it like? Like, just from concept to execution. And do you come from any kind of a documentary background? Or well, I, I work, I mean, I essentially, that's what I do for a living. I'm a, I'm a filmmaker in one way or another. I'm an editor. Uh, I shoot for other people. Um, this is the second full-length documentary I've directed. Um, the first one was called Children of the Stars, and it's kind of, it might interest you a bit since you're the religious guy in the bunch. Oh, gosh, don't. <laughs> I really want to get back on religion. Oh, it's about a bunch of imaginary stuff. <laughs> we have this discussion. It's, it's, about, it's about a flying saucer group who believe that um, uh, science fiction movies are real. They believe that all science fiction movies come from part of our unconscious. Yeah. Like Star Wars is something that happened. more rational than anything that I believe in. <laughs> well, that's the point of the movie in a way. Yeah. These guys are total, you know, weirdos by their own acknowledgement. But um, some of the parallels between what they believe and what Christianity and Judaism believe, you know. Anyway, so I did that. 
Um, Around what time did you do that? Yeah, a few years ago. I, I lose track of time, maybe three or four years ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was a much bigger scale. Like when I went into it, I, I knew I'd have to talk to a lot of people. And I ended up interviewing, I think, 60-something people for the movie. Um, <laughs> Don't comment on our selfies. I'm just going to sell out everything you do. <laughs> Anybody picks their nose, I'm talking about it. I have farted three times since we started recording. <laughs> I can't see that, so that's not going on. Um, so yeah, like you know, it was, I, I interviewed a lot of people, and, and it's just uh, you know, I don't know what to say about it. I mean, it was a I I, I worked my ass off on it because I wanted to I wanted to do it. If I get into something, I tend to sink my teeth into it, and I, I, it's hard for me to let go. Like I'm not the kind of person who could do something for ten years, like do a little bit here, let it rest, and then do something else. Mm-hmm. I just do it, and so I did. Did you have a lot of people working with you on it? Not a lot, no. I mean, I think to be honest, I mean, I edited the film. I shot probably eighty percent of it, seventy-five percent of it. Um, I ended up doing. I wore a lot of hats. Let's put it that way. But I had several, several uh, awesome cinematographers who did shoot some stuff for me. A guy named Nate Elagino and uh, a couple other guys. Um, but yeah, you end up, you know, with an indie documentary like this, you end up just doing a lot, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, did you have funding for the project? No, I did it all. So it was self-financed. I did it all out of pocket. We did a benefit show at the Casbah that raised me a little bit of money, but. Um, as much as I really appreciate that, it's a drop in the bucket. It bought me a hard drive, basically. Right. Um, but no, I didn't. I decided not to do a Kickstarter or anything. Um, yeah, I did that. You know, I had people help me. Uh, a lot of people offered to help just for free because they were really stoked to do it. And I really relied. Like I tried to make the movie in the spirit of the scene it documents. So it's very DIY, mm-hmm. um, and I'm, I'm trying to show it in the same way. You know, right. that I think these people. Were there were there other music documentaries that you took as an inspiration or that you like a lot? I I, I like a lot of music documentaries, but I think I took negative inspiration, <laughs> which is I and I'm not gonna name any names. I think I looked at some ones I I didn't like what they did. Mm-hmm. What were the what were the elements that you didn't like about them? If you can't say what they are, yeah, then... no, I mean I think and I've talked about this a lot. I think <clears throat> there's a laziness to some music documentaries where they don't. A, they don't pay any attention to the story. Like to me, there has to be some sort of story beyond just mm-hmm. that they were awesome bands. There has to be some sort of through line. Um, and for me, the through line is is it's the sense of community and it's also the rise and fall of the next Seattle phase in San Diego. Um, so it was a matter of story, and uh, I hate nostalgia. <laughs> I really do. I mean, I know it's a fine line, and I, I maybe barely skirted it in the movie, but. To me, it's not about nostalgia. It's about like cultural history. I don't like... One thing I see in a lot of punk documentaries especially is they'll open with a bunch of talking heads saying, this was fucking awesome. This band kicked my fucking ass. <laughs> and it's never going to happen again. Cue credits. Yeah. Movie. Yeah. Everybody talks about how badass it was. End of movie. And that's fine if you really like the music. But to me, it's a bit alienating, especially like... It can all happen again, you know. It's never just because we're old farts doesn't mean. And it like, may be happening now. Exactly. Most, most crucially, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I, I tried to some degree, you know, hopefully give that spirit in the film. Like it's even though this is about a certain time and a place, it's really more about an ethos, and that ethos can happen anywhere, anytime, with any. Right. If you're willing to do it, it can happen. You know, and inspiration strikes anywhere. So yeah, I mean, I think I had kind of negative inspiration. I just tried to avoid some of the things that I saw stock things that are done in documentaries 
I, I, I identify with that, the <clears throat> feeling of like, oh, we're documenting this one thing, and you have, you all, there's almost an attitude to the audience of like, you don't understand it if you weren't there, yeah. and it'll never yeah. happen again, especially since it's a weird some of those of documentaries, those bands have since tried to get back together to play for these <laughs> kids who will never understand, yeah. and it's like, well, they understand enough to pay for your new home, <laughs> so <laughs> clearly. There, there's actually one documentary, which, which I, I mostly liked. So I don't want to pick on it, but the name bothers me. It's called "You Weren't There," <laughs> and it's a Chicago. It's about Chicago, right? And maybe I'm missing the significance of the name. Maybe it's buried in there somewhere in the movie. What that really means, but to me, it's like a "fuck you." Like you missed it. We did. We did it. <laughs> we missed it. Here's a chance to look at it. And I just don't think that's a healthy I attitude. Think, I think there are times where you can say that, like in the sense of like. Uh, if you're subject, like if you're doing a music documentary and then it's like, oh, and all these people are in jail now, right? Then maybe you know. But to to it certainly, it, it, I, I think, and I wanted to ask you about this when you're focusing on such a small. I mean, not only are you focused on San Diego and that type of music, you have a ten year period. Yeah. Uh, how do you then sell that movie to people for whom San Diego from the years 1986 to 1996? has no meaning. Right. You know, like, how do you convince them that that's a good idea? It sounds like you figured that out a little bit with the whole next Seattle, whatever right. thing. But was that part of your concern in making the movie is like, oh, is this a niche that I, I'm not going to be able to expand out of? Yeah, no, I mean, that that was definitely a concern. And, and whether I succeeded or not, I don't know. That's probably in the eye of the beholder. But um, I wanted something, obvious, obviously, that the people who really love these bands could appreciate and respect. But I tried to kind of keep a sense... Even when getting, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to answer that exactly, but I, I tried not to get bogged down in, in kind of specifics that, to me, aren't entirely relevant. Um, and I tried to kind of watch it from an outsider's perspective, like to keep a sense of humor about it, to keep a rhythm to it that kind of pulls people in. And and to be honest, like the subtitle about San Diego's music underground. At some point, that's going to go away. <laughs> I actually put that on there when I was developing the film because I wanted people to understand what I was doing mm -hmm. so I didn't have to answer the question all the time yeah. and also just when I was gathering material it kind of let people know right off the bat like I don't want your footage from 2000 blah 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 <laughs> um, uh, so yeah where was I <laughs> um, yeah no I, that, that was a big concern for me and people who've seen it I've shown it to some people who really don't even like this kind of music and they've liked the film a lot and that means a lot to me yeah. like I, I think if you if you uh are somebody who can appreciate kind of like grassroots culture and the meaning of community, which is to some degree what my other film's about too, Turn of the Stars. That's another group of kind of weirdos who banded together. If you can appreciate that and you have an interest in that, I think you can find something in this film um, to sink your teeth into. Hopefully it's not just a, an endless procession of uh, noisy bands. <laughs> but I don't know, you guys can tell me when you see it. <laughs> Why did you choose 1986 as the starting point? Well, 86 is the year... Um, in San Diego, it's the year that the band Pitchfork formed. And Pitchfork, in a lot of ways, you know, was the first kind of post-hardcore band in San Diego. Like the equivalent of, uh, of a Fugazi or a yeah. Rites of Spring or whoever you want to say. Um, and even nationally, 86, I think, was when... I think I forget the dates exactly. I interviewed Ian MacKay for the film for reasons that I can get into later. But I think '86 was the same year that they officially like it was the end of hardcore. Really, like it had just kind of it had, it had curdled. You know what I mean? Like it, it was this wonderful thing, and then it just sort of turned into a violent 
mm-hmm. mess of a scene. And so in 86, like thinking of something new and something different and things were coming together in a new way. So that's why it starts in 86. And then 96 uh, is basically the year that kind of uh, alternative nation changed a little bit. Like all the promise of, you know, that we were going to hear awesome music on the radio all the time kind of started to plummet. <laughs> and in San Diego, 96 and 97 is when Jewel hit big and Blink-182 hit big. And if you watch the film, they're sort of, that's sort of the signpost that something had kind of, a corner had been turned. So it's a very convenient little 10-year, it's a very natural arc, dramatic arc. Um, and it's, it's pretty close to being pretty accurate. So. There, there still are a bunch of hardcore bands in the documentary, though, right? Like, mm-hmm. from what I understand, like yeah. the Swing Kids are in there. But I mean, they're sort of they're more like post-hardcore, I would say. I mean, now we're getting into these you know kind of bullshit genres, <laughs> but like, like Justin says that Justin Pearson basically says that Swing Kids was ripping off Drive Like Jehu. That was the idea. They just did it in a different. They didn't quite do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's but when like hardcore, I mean like the you know GBH, let's go uh, fucking sock somebody in the head and skinhead riots, that kind of thing. And San Diego had the worst skinhead hardcore scene in the nation. A lot of people say, like Ian Mackay talks about coming to town and it was just scary. So that's that was very much like a, when that kind of washed away, when those kind of old crusty dudes, basically all the new kids just moved away from the old crusty dudes. They just got tired of having their ass kicked and they started something new and that's 86. Mm-hmm. And that's when like a new thing was born. So it's, it's, there's definitely a big difference between like Battalion the Saints who are an old school hardcore band and who are in the movie. There's a big difference between Battalion the Saints and Pitchfork or Swing Kids or something like that. They just have yeah. a different, they're both awesome but they're very different in their outlooks on life I would say <laughs> right yeah. right. how are you taking the movie about how, how, is, how is this being screened to people now well I'm doing you know little tours this is really the first one we've shown it in San Diego I think uh, one two three four times three times four times I don't know uh, we've shown it in Tijuana just you know south of the border in Mexico uh, we showed it in New York last night which was really great uh, tonight Philadelphia and then Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, I'm doing LA, Atlanta. I'm basically treating it like a band, essentially. I'm just hitting the road and going to places that I think, uh, uh, you know, are interesting and that are in- interested in the film. And I'm where are you doing it in Portland? I'm sorry. Uh, where, where in Portland are you doing uh, The Hollywood Theater. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know that place? Yep. Yep. I did a thing there last year. Oh, did uh, you? A presentation of... Uh, I do a project called Loud Fast Philly, which is somewhat similar to what you... Do and it is a series of interviews with people who were involved in underground music scene in Philadelphia oh, over cool. many years, uh, with the same sort of anti nostalgia feeling. And there was Good. a video presentation that we did here and a few other places, and I did that there, which which went over pretty well. And it's a really nice theater. Well, the the guy who I guess he's the programmer. I forget what he is. Connor? Did you meet Connor Kirkwood? Uh, maybe I don't. I don't remember who exactly. Yeah. I well, Connor's an old San Diego dude. Like <laughs> that's the funny thing about the film. Like. San Diego, like the people who came out of that scene, like are doing amazing things, like everywhere. It's really, it's amazing the connections that I've like made through the film, um, and the tendrils that have gone out into the world. You know, um, you know everybody from like Shepard Ferry, who was kind of part of the scene, to uh, there's a guy who's uh, pretty high up in Facebook now. I mean, these divergent paths, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, not only. He designed Obama's campaign, I think, his design <laughs> campaign. But like, I'm just saying, like these these guys have gone out and they they just 
do these amazing things, and so I'm kind of uh, connecting all these little webs uh, around the around the world. So anyway, we're doing that. We're doing you know we're touring the states, and we're trying to put together something for uh, for Europe, uh, hopefully in the in the springtime. Then eventually it'll come out on DVD and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a label that's, that's putting it out, or are you doing it yourself? You know, I think I'm just probably going to do it myself. I was talking with uh, uh, Gary Hustwood, who's a documentary director. He did uh, Helvetica and Objectified and uh, uh, Urbanized. He's an old San Diego dude. <laughs> um, I, he was in the screening last night, and we were just kind of talking about, you know, there's not a lot of need for a label to do it these days um, unless you have a huge project. So I'll probably just do it myself. Um, thinking of it like a band, what has the <clears throat> crowd response been like? Like, have people been... Uh, excited? Have you had anyone sort of angrily tell you you missed something or you forgot something? People stage diving. Yeah. Finger pointing. Do people come up afterwards and they're like super stoked? What what, what do you you encounter? People are really stoked, actually. I mean, I've had some really wonderful... um, The response has been great. And and actually, I mean, if I've gotten any criticisms, I don't think I've gotten an angry one yet. They've always been very kind of... yeah, they're not particularly... Somebody says, well, maybe you could have gotten this in or something like that, but they all seem to like it. So that makes me nervous. I kind of want somebody to hate it, but I'm sure that'll happen soon. I'm sure somebody will hate the fuck out of this thing. <laughs> but no, it's been really nice. Like, It's pretty much every screening we've done, Some, you know, a group of people coming to me afterwards and tell me some you know, incredible story. One of the guys in the film, actually... or No, he's not in the film, I'm sorry, but he was part of the scene. He kind of called me up out of the blue the other day, and he was practically crying on the phone, talking about like how much it meant to him, not only that this had happened to his life, but that's to see it documented like that. And um, yeah, that's kind of been the norm. It's been it's been really good, and it's been exciting to see people who maybe aren't so knowledgeable about it see the film, or people you know, hopefully like you, who who maybe uh, are interested in certain bands. Uh, and maybe don't know about the, some of these obscure bands or understand like the social fabric from which a band like Rocket was birthed. Yeah. I and mean, that's what's interesting to me. It's like a band like Rocket. It's like, you know, it's like anything. You look at the Beatles. The Beatles didn't come out of nothing. They came out of like a group of people in a very specific place. And it's always fascinating to me to see like who built that foundation on which they rose. Which they then came up out of. Exactly. Right, right, right. So, uh, you know, that's a lot of the what I want to do with the film. So it's very exciting. Yeah. It's been really great all around. Do you have any feeling for the current state of music underground in San Diego? Do you have any connection to it or observations on it? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm an old fuck at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I go to shows and I know a few really good bands in San Diego. What um, bands do you like now that are current that you're uh, really there, into? There's a band called Mrs. Magician who I think uh, Jacob, the songwriter, is is brilliant. Uh, they're they're amazing, uh, and they're on John Reese's record label. Swami. On Swami, yeah, yeah. they're amazing. I, I love Mrs. Magician, um, Octagrape, but that's mostly that, that's mostly older San Diego dudes. They were in the band Truman's Water, uh, and then one of the guys was in a band called Fluff. Uh, Octagrape is incredible. They're one of the best bands I think in the country. Um, Earthless. Uh, they're not really in San Diego these days, so but good. they're amazing. Earth is so <laughs> fucking good. So good. But they're a classic case that they've gotten so good and so big that they never play San Diego anymore. Like, they tour the world. I haven't seen them play San Diego in a year or two. Um, oh, there are a bunch more. I can't think of them. Ghetto Blaster is amazing. 
There's a lot going on in San Diego, and it's it's much. So different. it's still a very vibrant and productive scene. Though. It's more. I mean, there's more going on. The only thing is, it's a bit more scattered because now it used to be the Casbah. Now there, are, I don't know, there are a dozen really cool venues in San Diego now. The Casbah is still like the king, I think, of alternative quote unquote music. But there's so many places. Like you go to North Park, San Diego, you can just walk down the street and see shows. Yeah, it's fucking great. But. Yeah, I'm not the best guy to ask about some of the younger guys. You know, I, I see them here or there, and I like it. But you know, I'm I'm not out every night doing that anymore. Right, right. Hmm. When you were doing this, was there anything that um, was a total surprise to you? I mean, because you said you were a little bit at a distance, but also a little bit familiar. So it's like you know some of what's going on. But was there anything that either a story or music or anything that you were like? how did I not know about this or something that kind of smacked you upside the head that was like unbelievable well I'll tell you the one I mean there, there are probably a few of those moments but the one that people gasped in the audience last night at this moment in the movie which I don't know if I had noticed I don't remember that happening in San Diego so it must have been more common knowledge there than, than I realized at the time there was a band I don't know if I want to go too specifically into it but there's, there's a, there was a band that was basically formed to cash in on the alternative rock explosion in San Diego, like that was, according to one of the members in the in the in the movie, he says, I forget, I can almost quote him. Uh, Everybody knew we were a joke. It was to make money. I had two bands. He was in another band that was this weird art jazz band. It was called Credo. It's it's fucking great. <laughs> He's like, I had one band to make money, one band to make music. Wow. And it's yeah, and people gasped last night in New York <laughs> just to hear him say that, just so bluntly. And I had no idea, you know, I remember, uh, they were called Rust, I remember Rust touring, and I remember them getting on Atlantic Records and all that, and they were not entirely my cup of tea, um, it's not to say they were bad, it's not entirely my cup of tea, but I would never have guessed it was that calculated. That's probably the most surprising thing to me, it was weird to hear somebody say that, and that's like a bit of a microcosm of the movie right there, is this guy Tim, who was in two bands, one super art damaged and weird the other one to make money like that was what was happening at a certain point in San Diego it was like this you know Robert Frost two roads bullshit <laughs> I'm making hand gestures trying to explain this so, yeah that's probably the biggest one but you know there are all kinds of little stories little details and just uh, uh, weird things there's a guy named Ryan Fox who was in uh, a band called Fishwife which probably not that many people know outside of San Diego but they're great I've got some footage of him doing really great stage antics that um, really need to be seen to be believed. <laughs> Lots of Ryan Fox stories didn't make the movie. That, that would be a good thing to do uh, for the extras. <laughs> <laughs> Any other projects in the works or ideas you're working on? I've got ideas, but I don't know. Um, I don't know what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to kind of figure it out. I'm refining some ideas and trying to figure out if they're possible to. You know, I want to do something on a. Like it's gonna blow is on a much bigger scale than Children of the Stars, just in terms of what I did, and in terms of the way I approached the material, and in terms of the quality of it. Um, I'm just trying to kind of I want everything I do to be a little bit just kind of pushing myself with each one. So I'm kind of choosing the next one uh, carefully. You know, hopefully something that I can pull off, but also you know be challenging and uh, you know uh, and fun to do at the same time. So. We'll see. Hopefully in the next couple months I'll have something to start on. Are there documentarians whose work you really appreciate? Yeah. Um, nothing that I think has I would compare myself to in any way. <laughs> but like Errol Morris, Werner Herzog. Um, there's another guy I love and I can't even remember his name. I can never remember his name. But he did a movie called uh, 
Sherman's March, he does almost, they're like, you know, they're almost not documentaries. They're almost like diaries. Yeah, I've seen Sherman's March, which is fantastic. Is yeah, I, I don't remember the guy's name. I can never but, remember his uh... name, and I feel so bad because he's, so, he's amazing. He did several. He did one called, I can't remember the names of his movies either. He did one called like Time Memorial or something, just about, basically about him growing older. And they sound so navel-gazy and horrible, but he's, they're not. I mean, they're really beautiful. No, Sherman's March is an amazing funny. Yeah, He's yeah, funny yeah. as shit. Yeah. McElwin, or McElwin, something like that. Yeah, I, I don't have any recollection of what his name was. That's his name, Ross but... something like that. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> uh, then there's, uh, I think it's Agnes Varda did a couple really great documentaries. Yeah, I, I like, you know, um, I like those people and the Maisels Brothers. And, you know, I like kind of a lot of those old, old school weirdo documentary makers, you know, people who hopefully think a little bit outside of the box, that kind of thing. Uh, how did you get into being, you know, a filmmaker? Like, why, what sort of led you in this direction? What, what was that decision? And were you uh, kind of into that before you started doing it? Or did you just find yourself getting into it? Well, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I kind of just ended up doing it in a way. I mean, I was always interested in, like, telling stories. At one point, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer, and I kind of quickly discovered that I don't have the discipline to be a writer. I need some kind of, like, I don't know. I need something to work with. I can't just look at a blank page. And then just go at it. Yeah, I right. can't do that. But who are your guys then, uh, the writers that you... Oh, God, I was so pretentious. <laughs> James <laughs> Joyce, William Gaddis. Like, high modernism is what mm-hmm. I liked, all that kind of stuff. And I couldn't in a million years write like that. In a million years. It's still a great thing. I think I still approach things that way. But... What do you mean? Ulysses is so easy to read. <laughs> <laughs> I could never do something like that. Uh, Nabokov, that kind of thing, you know. Uh, we are recording this in the city of Philadelphia. This is all yeah. the street. All this is the street. Oh, this is all the time. right now. Two cars honking at each other out of annoyance. That's right. Honk, honk, honk. I was just waiting for the swearing to start and the punches or whatever. That would have been sick. <laughs> Pat's Gino's argument. Yeah, then, right. That movie would have been talking more about the Philly uh, music scene than the San Diego music scene. Yeah, I do want to hear about the Philly music scene, though, after we... I, I want you to finish talking about your filmmaking uh, inspiration, oh, how just, you got I'll into it, to the quick and, here, then I, yeah. and then I, I do want to relate something. <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, basically, so I wanted to be a writer, blah, 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 blah. I ended up being a, an art dealer, which is much more, uh, which is a lot fancier than it really was. Sounds a lot fancier than it really was. Um, but I did that for 10 years, and I, I made a pretty good living at it, and blah, blah, blah. And eventually, I just, it was time to, uh, it was time for a change, and I just decided to do something. And somehow, I ended up making films i have no idea it was just well that's not true i decided I, I i enrolled in a terrible program through ucsd which is the worst fucking piece of shit ever <laughs> they're in san diego do not go to the digital arts center whatever the fuck they call that thing. fuck that place some nice teachers but it was the worst but as usual i'm inspired by negative experiences the same way i'm inspired by bad music documentaries think that right. course and it's sheer shoddiness inspired me to like just do things I just needed a 180 turn in my life at one point. I was just kind of sick of what I was doing. I need something different. Uh, and that's what happened. I, I really don't know why I did it. And I'm still not sure why I'm doing it. But I, I, it's something I feel very at home doing. And it's, it's fun. It's a chance to be a, tell a story in the same, same way that you would as a, a writer or a novelist. But it's also like, uh, I don't know, it's like, uh, it's like it's, there's elements of like collage and... Uh, um, almost like sculpting to me it's almost like sculpting just finding like different the way things work off of each other you know mm-hmm. I don't know 
Uh, it's 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 really exciting. I love it. I mean, it's it's really hard and challenging, but fun at the same do, time. Do you enjoy the collaborative process? Because usually writers are very insular in yeah. their creative process, and this surely involves a lot of other people. Yeah. No, I do because I like to basically have I like to have a concept, and then I, it's very interesting for me to then force it out into the world and into contact with with other people and other things and see what happens. That's what's nice about documentary, as opposed to say. Uh, making a narrative film, even though I've, I've made some short narrative films and I'm working hopefully on a bigger one, but it's it's you can you can have your idea of what your story is, but there's really and you can control it to a certain extent, but you can't control it 100. percent You never know what's going to happen when you stick a camera in front of a real person and start talking to them, and you never know if your hypothesis is going to be borne out or not. Like certain things that maybe I thought about the San Diego scene probably were debunked as I went through it and that's great every time you talk to somebody do an interview or every time you look at a piece of footage or you put two pieces of footage together it's challenging you to rethink everything you're doing constantly and that's yeah that's the best part of it that's why I couldn't be a writer you know I can't I can't imagine sitting in a room for two years just bashing your head against that that blank paper and just being swallowed up by your own thoughts I kind of need somebody I think to work off of and you kind of get to tour now almost like a band, you know, moving to yeah. different DIY venues, sleeping on somebody's floor, yeah. you know, briefly interacting with people, eating some bad spaghetti, and then leaving, you know, that sort of... It's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the bad spaghetti part's the best part. <laughs> also, these great Federal Donuts, which I'd like to plug right now. Yeah, federal you know, Donuts. Donuts. Big thank you to I Federal Donuts. I call them Fed Nuts. I don't know if you guys know that. <laughs> Big thank you to Federal Donuts. Well, what uh, were you going to relate, Liam? Oh, well, so... Um, because I was thinking about this idea that you're specifically talking about 86 to 96. And I was looking around the table, and I'm the youngest of the five of us. And I, was you, thinking, I <laughs> and I was thinking in 96, you know, I feel like probably all of you knew a little bit about San Diego. Like, all the bands that are in this documentary, in 96, I had no patience for it. Uh-huh. 96, I was wearing big pants and moshing the Fury of Five. Like, 96, <laughs> I was like thugcore or whatever. It wasn't until literally uh, probably like four years later that I went back and was like, oh, man, there's some great bands out of San Diego, like mid ninety. Like, I didn't know anything about this stuff. So it's just kind of funny that it's like, well, 96 is when things started to wrap up because I'm still like ignorant. Like, I had no idea. <laughs> I was in a whole other world. And like, and this happens a lot, actually, because... Um, <clears throat> strangely, I feel like when you're talking about the current scene, I think like a lot of those bands don't connect. Like a lot of the younger kids I interact with who still go to shows, they're idolizing the 80s. The 80s are really cool right now. Yeah. 80s and then 90s rock. Yeah. So everyone wants 80s hardcore and 90s like grunge rock. That sounds awful. Uh, oh, yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> that sounds so bad. But that's like what's and, and 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 you know, and I appreciate that. That's fine. But it, it was just weird to me. Like we're thinking about it like. Man, I was missing out, and like I wonder if that style, this San Diego, if that's going to get a renaissance, or they're going to be what some is, just, just out of curiosity, from an East Coast perspective, what was your perspective of the style of San Diego hardcore? I only knew a few of those bands. I would say uh, the first I knew a little bit about uh, 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 Drive Like Jehu, but I was like, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew a little bit. The first band I saw from San Diego was The Locust. Mm. I saw The Locust and I saw Crimson Curse. Mm. 
And when I first saw the locust, I was like, this is some bullshit. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, but at the, like I said, at the time, by the time I saw the locust, I was I was broadening a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I certainly wasn't listening to anything like power violence, let alone mm-hmm. power violence with keyboards and weird costumes. I was just like, what the fuck is going on? I mean, allow me to say, as the oldest person here at, at 43, and then Bull is 40. Second oldest. Sec- no, I guess you would be second oldest, right? 42. Yeah. And then well, Bull would be third. I'm a young 42. Yeah. But uh, of, of four of us. But uh, I mean, we had, when we did, we did a, uh, a thing called the Cabbage Collective throughout the early 90s until the late 90s. Um, so it was a DIY venue where we had lots of bands touring. And we had San Diego bands playing I wouldn't say on a regular basis, but as much as they toured, and we had what Antioch yeah. Arrow played. Yeah, mm-hmm. heroin. Second Star Window. Um, was Julia from San Diego? I forget. What, what was that again? Julia? Julia. You know that band? The that Abolition Band. Doesn't ring a bell to me. Uh, it, it might band. be though. There's certain areas. Yeah, I can't know, so is well. Unbroken from from San Diego? Unbroken. We also I love Unbroken. I do love Unbroken. I always loved Unbroken. God damn it! Anyway. Well, finish your thought. Uh, well, no, it was just that, that, that the scene was was very popular amongst yeah. the people that we went to the shows with, and also there was also a, a visual aesthetic, at least for the bands that would come through with us, the kind of like Romulan haircut <laughs> and the, the Let floods. Let me tell you what, my but, perception yeah. of so San Diego. So we would see a lot of that, and it would spread its tendrils. So bands around here would then yeah. begin to a- adapt to that that you know visual style, and then also the the performing uh, mm. performing elements. Both. Yeah, well, and some of our my circle of friends. We're really into some of those bands, uh, you know, like Drive Like Jehu and Three Mile Pilot were pretty influential to some of us and okay. us playing music. And uh, and then, well, we kind of felt like it started to go off the deep end with the yeah white belts and, <laughs> and, and all that. It's a different uh, phase, like that stuff. Like yeah, that's a different yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. Josh, what were you saying? Oh no, I'm just saying my perception of San Diego hardcore was like, yeah, it's like the Outsiders. And then sometimes a guy would have a tambourine around his neck and scream a whole bunch. <laughs> like, I don't fucking get it. But, I mean, like, I knew it was, like, Rocket from the Crypt and all that stuff, but I didn't realize. I, I mean, and I knew that the other bands, like the Swing Kids and shit like that, San Diego. But the San Diego aesthetic. Somebody farted. <laughs> that's the first fart on the show. The, the, that aesthetic was, like, skinny pants and, you know, I, just really thin white guys. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being like, man, that skinny dude is mad. Yo, side note, we were making jokes about the religion thing, but the reason I got into later San Diego bands was actually a Philly band called Me Without You. When they started out, they were actually a hardcore band, which no one knows because they aren't in any way now. And they all were obsessed. Like, regularly, when I my I was in a really bad metalcore band, we went on tour with them. <laughs> and that's all I wanted to listen to in the van were bands from San Diego, almost entirely. And, uh, and, um, and, uh, uh, Bell and Sebastian. It was Bell and Sebastian. <laughs> it would go like Bell and oh, Sebastian, God. and then Drive Like Jehu, and then Bell and Sebastian, and Heroin, and then Bell and Sebastian, and then The Locust, or whatever. And they were, in fact, on tour, one of the guys in, ah, oh, this is probably bad PR. I don't care. One of the guys in Me Without You a couple times lied to kids and said that Me Without You sounded like Crimson Curse and sold <laughs> CDs that way. Because nice. kids were like, oh shit, that's so sick. You know, like they were so into it. So that, but I didn't know, you know, like I said, like my band was like a bad metalcore, like standard metalcore band of, of the 1999 variety. And so, like, I had no idea what that stuff. And then, like, later on, I, you know, it took me a while to figure out, like, well, a lot of the music I like now was made at a time where I should have 
Like, I was active in the scene. It wasn't like I was a young kid who didn't know. It was just my taste evolved, and all of a sudden, I cared about bands that when they were touring, I was like, fuck, I'm not going to that show. It's the same night as an E-Town Concrete show. (laughs) (laughs) What was your perception of East Coast Hardcore coming up? My perception of East Coast Hardcore... (laughs) was violent basically like it just seemed mean or like not violent that's not wrong I mean that's not right I mean just fucking tough I guess I don't know but I guess I'm I'm more like I guess like I'm not even really a hardcore guy like I never know what to call these things like I'm more or I was at the time I was more like whatever Sonic Youth is like that type of shit like hardcore I I was never that big of a hardcore guy Mm -hmm. but yeah if I thought I just thought sort of thought about you know uh, God, whatever. I thought, you know, unsane and stuff like that. I just pictured like badass dudes walking around in cold fucking cities, <laughs> getting a lot of anger out of their guitars. I, don't right. know what I, thought, man. I have yeah. no idea. Fair enough. I mean, that's yeah, that's about right. That's a section. That's a, that's a good chunk. Uh, I know they have to start getting ready and actually like play the movie and make sure it works and stuff. Does anyone have any final questions before we wrap up here? Or statements? Is John Reese nice? John Reese is very nice. <laughs> Fucking Christ. Of course he is, goddammit. <laughs> John is very nice. <laughs> That's hilarious. I just remembered a short anecdote, which was when we were playing at the Che Cafe every night for that week when our band had no other shows. Uh, they made us the most delicious burritos, and then uh, gave us brownies and then we were all straight edge and later found out that they put pot in the brownies uh, and we oh, broke edge man. <laughs> yeah we were very disappointed total <laughs> edge break <laughs> for real straight edge in, in San Diego wasn't very straight <laughs> that way even the guys who were supposedly straight edge I don't think they were all that straight edge that surprised me alright I've run out of thought. I have no more thoughts. Okay, good. Uh, Thank you for sitting down with us. Uh, If I know we have listeners who are not in the Philadelphia area, so hopefully all of our Philadelphia listeners are going to be here tonight. But Mm. if you're not, that would be two people. Three. (laughs) We're all here. Like a baker's dozen. Yeah, both of us are here, Liam. Just saying, man. (laughs) But uh, no, uh, if you get a chance to check it out, please go see uh, this movie and. Uh, you said you're going to be releasing like DVD. Is it going to be online or anything like that? We'll, we'll do like a, a digital download type deal, and then probably uh, like a deluxe DVD with probably a whole disc full of all kinds of extra shit. Can people find you on the social medias? To yeah, track? it's Facebook.com SD Music Doc SD Music D O C. Uh, same for Twitter. Cool. All right. Okay. Thank you very much, Bill Perrine. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. It was fun. Thanks. Also, right. thank to thank you to Bull and Joseph for for joining us for the evening. Thank you for having us and oh. adding legitimacy. Sure. <laughs> <and laughs> <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, <Gravitas>. meandering. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. Seriously. <laughs> the Gravitas Brothers. Right here. <laughs> yeah. No. Totally. Uh, yeah. And thanks for listening. Okay. Bye. Later.